chapter 2, verse 5. Once again, the passage comes from 1 Corinthians 1.18 to 2.5. And the title of sermon is Gospel Centrality. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Good morning. If we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And we're starting a new series this Sunday, after the first Sunday after Easter, where we're asking the question, what's the vision of the church? And what we're trying to do in this series is understand how the events of Easter, of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection, now connects to us as the corporate people of God, as the church. It's clear that what Jesus did brings us individually to God, but it's also clear that it brings us to each other. And the question then is, for what? What's the point? Who are we and why are we here? What's the vision of the church? Now, the way that you answer that question has an awful lot to do with your background, with the social setting that's formed how you think and has formed what you value. It has an awful lot to do with your subculture. For instance, if you come from a more conservative tradition, the vision of the church tends to be fairly individualistic. Church does what? It exists to save souls, to evangelize, to tell other people about Jesus, get them to come to church so that they can be saved, so that they can tell other people about Jesus, about personal salvation. It's fairly individualistic. 
On the other hand, if you come from a more activist tradition, then the way that you evaluate the church is by asking, to what degree is it socially focused? To how effective, how involved is it as a change agent in society? And so you expect it to be more geared toward challenging existing social structures and offering alternatives. The way that we approach church and questions like what is the vision of the church has a lot to do with how our own cultural backgrounds have shaped us and influenced us and how they influence our expectations of church. What's that mean? That means that for the next five weeks I'm going to irritate all of us, myself included. Probably going to be at different times and in different ways because just like so many other things that you find in the kingdom of God, the church and how she functions does not easily fit into the categories that we expect from our subcultures, from our individualist and activist backgrounds. Instead, she's more complex, more nuanced. And that's because the vision of the church is not something that is defined by any individual human being or by any collection of human beings. It's not something that we get to figure out and decide for ourselves. The vision of the church is given to her from God, does not arise from within humanity. And when you think in those terms, you realize, huh, it, it, it's neither individualist or activist. It, it, it seems to grab some elements of both of those, but even then, not exactly. For instance, Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, right before he ascended into heaven, that the vision of the church is to make disciples to teach people to obey everything that he commanded them, teaching people, discipling people, so that they now live out this new lifestyle of the kingdom of God wherever they are, which means what? That in turn does change those social and cultural conditions in which those people now live. That's neither individualist nor activist. It's not even a combination of the two, but it's something completely different. It's outside of how our subcultures teach us to expect from the church. A friend reminded me of this, how this works the other day. Some time ago, her husband had emotionally cheated on her, and she had decided to stay with him and work to rebuild the marriage. She told me that I was allowed to share this. She was telling me a number of positive things about how they were doing now how they were working through some of the things that had pulled them apart earlier, they were, how they were building a closer relationship now, and it was even closer now than what it had been before, sharing many positive things. And as we're talking, she suddenly realized something. She said, you know, I don't think I would have stayed with him if I didn't have God in my life. She talked about how all of the advice that she was seeing online was to pack up and leave, shelter her finances, get a lawyer, but that was not the advice that she had gotten from friends in the church. Instead, they supported her in her marriage. They prayed with her. They helped her connect with God. They directed her to real resources from God that the online community does not have access to. And they helped her think about how to bring those resources into her home. They helped her to see how God in his relationship with her does not follow online advice. That there's lots of times when she's been too busy for God, effectively cheating on him, pushing him away because she finds something else more satisfying. And even though she's treated him that way, he's never left her, hasn't locked her out of all of the good things he's given her, hasn't gotten himself a lawyer. 
but he's kept loving her, pursuing her, thinking about what's good for her. He does not accept being treated badly by her, but he doesn't treat her badly in return. And as she experiences more of him, that has changed her, and it has changed her in ways that her husband sees, along with giving her resources to engage her husband, not to let him run over her, but to love him like God has loved her. She's learned to see God and connect with him. Why? She reached out to Christian friends who loved her and helped her with the resources that God's given them. Now, what is that? She's been discipled by the church. Learn to love God, be loved by him, learn to listen to how he calls her to live. And as she does that, she then changes the social setting in which she's embedded. Her husband obviously has had a lot of work to do, but she's not been passive during this time. She's not sat back just waiting. She's been very active. She's been a change agent in her marriage. Someone who's altered the family dynamics, created a different kind of relationship with her husband, one that's good for both of them, one that provides stability for her children. Now, what is that? That's a very quiet microcosm of the church carrying out its vision to make disciples who in turn impact the cultural culture around them. She's doing it at the level of the family unit, the very small segment of society. Other people do it at broader, larger levels, but what she's doing in her smaller society comes from the same dynamic as those who do it in larger ones because it comes out of the same vision. The vision that in the gospel, God gives us access to unlimited resources that so transform individuals that they in turn transform the round the world around them. In that sense, this is important, the church does what no other social organization on earth can do. It makes disciples, with this caveat, as long as we understand that disciples are not made, that the church has not carried out its mission, unless those disciples enter their world in a way to attempt to transform the societal and social structures in which they live, the ones that are out of step with how God thinks people should live. Let's say that a little more succinctly. Quoting Tim Keller here, the job of the institutional church gathered is not to change social structures and culture. It's not activist. It's to create disciples who will change social structures and the culture. It's not individualist. That's ultimately why we're here and what we're doing. Now, I can imagine someone saying, yeah, Bill, I, 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 I know all that. <laughs> I've heard that before, but what's the vision of our church? What makes us different from all the other churches? And for today, I'm going to ask you to leave that question aside. Not because it's unimportant, but because if we hang out on that question, it downplays something that is more important. And it misses that each church is far more alike with other individual churches than we are different. It misses that our fundamental difference, the thing that makes us stand out in this world, our fundamental distinctive, is not something between us and other churches. It's between us and the rest of humanity. 
So when we talk about what makes our church distinct, we first have to think in terms of this transformative gospel that is utterly unique in this world. That's our primary distinctive. That's what makes us stand out, and it's that difference that we have to hold on to first so that we can see just how radically different it is. Okay, what are we going to do as renewal? We're going to develop various ministries, distinct ministries, different ministry foci. We already are. But it's essential that we never confuse those distinctions with the primary vision and mission of the people of God that we share in with all the other churches. We can't let ourselves get ex more excited about whatever ministries we develop than we are for helping someone experience the transforming power of God in their life. When we do that, when we say, I know the gospel is important, but we're in danger of letting the distinction be more important to us, more special than the vision and the mission that God has given to his church. Long introduction today. What's our focus then today? It's to remind ourselves again that the gospel has to be central to everything that we do here at Renewal. It has to be the primary distinction of our church. It has to be the thing that corporately we prize above all others, and it's got to be the first thing that comes to our mind when we talk to other people about what is it that defines our church. And the way that we're going to go into that discussion today is by seeing that people were just as disgruntled with the church back in Paul's day as we can be in our own. We're going to look at 2,000 years ago that people came in with their own ideas of what church should be, what it should offer them, based on what their culture had taught them to expect, and they were really disappointed with what God provided instead. And God's solution to their disappointment was not to offer them something different, but to remind them one more time just how central the gospel has to be to the church. So what were the Corinthians unhappy about? As you read the, first, uh, read the two letters to the Corinthians, you realize they had a problem with Paul. The gospel had come to them through his ministry, but they were not terribly impressed with him personally, not impressed with how he presented himself. And this mattered so much to them that they talked about him behind his back. They critiqued his appearance, they dismissed what he said because of his speaking style, or in their minds his lack of speaking style. And this was such a big deal that word got back to him. Somehow Paul knew that they were all talking about him. They were saying, 2 Corinthians 10.10, his bodily presence is weak. His speech of no account. Paul did not measure up to what their culture taught them to expect from a gifted speaker. Someone who, with the power of his voice, the strength of his reason, could command their attention and respect. Someone whose words had to be heeded because of the force of his own personality. His bodily presence is weak, his speech of no account. And when Paul hears what they're thinking, he does not go out and enroll in a Dale Carnegie professional development training course. One that would turn him into, quote, an engaging leader, a powerful presenter, a confident service professional. Instead, Paul doubled down. He wrote to the Corinthians in our passage today, chapter 2, verse 2, and he essentially said, that's not why I came. 
It was not my intention to overwhelm you. Not my intention to wow you. I came with a different intention. One that was far more important, even if it looks less reputable. I came deciding to know nothing while I was among you except Christ and Him crucified. That's our focus this morning because that's our focus in our church. On nothing except Christ and Him crucified. On nothing except the gospel. And I want to consider Christ crucified with you from three perspectives. First, what this means. What, what Christ and Him crucified means. Second, why it's so hard to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. And then third, very briefly, why it's absolutely essential. So three things this morning about knowing nothing except Christ and Him crucified, what that means, why it's so hard to do, and why it's essential. First, what this means. I want to start by talking about what this does not mean. Paul is not saying here that he came simply retelling the passion narrative. He's not saying that the only thing he talked about were the historical events that took place some 20 years earlier in Israel leading up to the cross so that now we can have a relationship with God. It's not what Paul means. It's often, however, what many of us think when we think about Christ crucified. I was counseling a husband one time who was afraid of his wife, with good reason. He had learned over the years that if she was unhappy with him, she would likely give him the silent treatment, and sometimes this would last for weeks, sometimes for months. And so he had learned early on to sit back in the relationship, not initiate certainly not challenge or not even suggest that maybe there could possibly be some things that we might consider changing around the house. He would not do that out of fear that she would cut him off out of her life. I'm trying to find a way to empower him, to help him realize that there's another person in his marriage, that it's not just him and her, but that Jesus is also present with him. And that this husband could rely on Jesus, could, could rely on being loved by Christ, rely on his power to overcome his fear of his wife and, and how she might respond to him. So I asked him, tell me what the gospel looks like when you're scared of how she might respond. What does Jesus dying on the cross unleash for you unleash in you so that you can then step into that space with confidence not confidence in some particular outcome but confidence that you have right now what it takes to love your wife well even if she doesn't respond to you well what does the gospel mean for you in those kinds of times and his response has just really stood out in my mind he looked at me and he said well okay let's see um Jesus died for my sins so that I can go be with him in heaven. You know what he says? This is a lot easier when I'm talking to an unbeliever. That is a man, while he is among his family, when he is with his wife, who has not decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Instead, this is a man who has relegated Jesus down into a small area of his life 
to what you need in order to start a relationship with God. But once that happens, you no longer really need Jesus to live the rest of life. And so you don't need to think about the difference that Christ makes for you in your kitchen when you're too scared to start a conversation because you're not really sure where is this going to go. This is not what Paul has in mind here in verse 2 when he says he decided to know nothing except Christ. How do you know that's not what he means? Because as you read the rest of the book, you discover it's written to people who already know Christ, people who are already Christians, people who already have a personal connection with God, not to people who need to start one. And it's not focused, it's not a book focused way off somewhere in the future on living a life in heaven. The book is focused on the present moment, on living here and now. And so Paul talks in this book about dealing with leaders, about sexuality, about marriage, lawsuits, interacting with secular culture, interacting with other believers, dealing with death. He talks about the nitty-gritty details of life. But each time he does so, he ties those issues of life back to Christ in some way, back to Christ's death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, back to how the reality of what Jesus has done informs what you do now. He applies the gospel. He teases out the implications of the gospel to each topic of life here on earth. That's what it means to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. It's to realize that if you are now connected to Christ in his death and his resurrection, then all of life is connected to Christ in his death and his resurrection. And since that's the case, you no longer have an option, but you have to see all of life, you have to view all of life through the lens of Christ and him crucified. Since you're now connected to Christ, his life, death, and resurrection interprets what you see as you live life. It tells you how to understand this world in your life. It guides you in what you do next based on help, what it's helped you to see. This for the Christian now becomes the controlling grid. It becomes the paradigm that shapes your perspective as you gaze out onto the world. It's the window out onto the world. And it then informs how you live in this world. When I was a freshman back in college a couple years ago, my roommate and I hung out with a couple of upperclassmen. They kind of adopted us. One of them was studying electrical engineering, and we had dropped by his room while he was working, and during that time, his pencil rolled off his desk and fell onto the floor. And without skipping a beat, as he reached down to pick it up, he said, F equals MA. For the non-initiated, that's everybody who's not laughing. That's a physics equation that tells you what the relationship is between force and acceleration on an object. And so that equation describes what happens when the force of gravity gets hold of something like a pencil and pulls it down toward the earth when the desk is no longer pushing the pencil up. My roommate and I talked about that later that night. He said, man, how long do you have to study before you just automatically see the world through these formulas? That's what the upperclassmen did, right? He had learned to see the entire world through the lens of certain equations. 
They were the interpretive grid through which he understood and navigated the larger world. So much so that they were just, they were automatic. You see the pencil fall, you think F equals MA. For the Christian, that grid, the one that becomes more and more automatic as we follow Christ, that grid is that we see everything connected to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. We see all of life through that lens, and we depend on a real present connection to Christ to give us the power to live out the life that we now see. Because knowing nothing other than Christ and Him crucified is not simply a mental exercise. It's, it's not simply a way of seeing. It's not simply a philosophical outlook on life. It's now your reality. It's your way of being. When Jesus broke, when Jesus rose, the new creation broke into this old one, physically. In his body, his resurrected body is part of the new creation. That means that everyone who is in Christ, who is connected to him by his spirit, buried with him in baptism, raised again to new life, everyone who is in Christ is also new creation as well. That means we don't just watch Jesus as our example, our example of how to live, but we rely on our connection with him to live out this new life that he's brought us into. So we're not moralists. We're not people who think that if you just show us what is good, if you just teach us, educate us, then we can muster up the power to do what we've been taught. It's not what we are. We're not moralists. We're Christians. We actively rely on the power of the Spirit to change our hearts so we now love what we see and to give us the power to live out what we now love. That's what it means to decide to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It means that you tie every aspect of life to the crucified and risen Messiah in some way, and you rely on Him to live out this life. That's what it means that the gospel is central to all that we do here at Renewal. It needs to be central to what we do from the pulpit, to our liturgy, to our Bible studies, our CGs. It's got to be central to our youth and our children's ministries, to women's ministry. It's got to be central to counseling, to our casual conversations. It has to be central to our sports ministry. Our elder Daniel Loy stood up here a couple months ago, helped us understand how sports ministry fits into the larger vision here at Renewal that's driven by the gospel. Now, why did he do that? Because we have to be a church that is marked by the centrality of the gospel in everything that we do. We're not running a suburban athletic league. But just like Paul in Corinthians, we want to tie all that we do in the same way back to some aspect of the gospel. That's our primary distinction. If somebody asks you, what is it that sets renewal apart? It's this that ought to come to your mind when you're trying to describe us. That we are focused on and motivated by Christ and Him crucified. It's point one. Now, point two. Why is this so hard to do? Why is this central focus so hard to maintain? Why is it so easy to slip into, I know all that, but... Well, let's think again about the, the background here. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, to the people living in Corinth. That was a city that Julius Caesar reestablished in 44 B.C. 
it was colonized with people who used to be slaves or who came from the military. And so it was a city of opportunity for people from those lower social classes to better themselves, to, to climb the social ladder. And so it developed its own subculture where things like fame, wealth, recognition, those were important social commodities. They were the things that you wanted because they would help you move from one social station to the next. Fame, wealth, recognition. Things that have nothing to do with God's work. Either in you or in this world, they're not what God values. They don't make him like you better. They're not what he promises to give you. In that sense, they may be what the world relies on to get ahead. They are not what the kingdom of God relies on. And Paul needs to underline that with the Corinthians in chapters 1 and 2 of this letter. He's resetting the Corinthians' expectations away from the way that the world impacts them to show that Christianity does not value the same things that Corinthian society did. And to show you that if you start from where the world starts, God's way of working, it just looks foolish. And so Paul says, chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, that God chooses to work in this world through a crucified Messiah. Not one who triumphs in power, but one who gets crushed in weakness. And that just looks foolish to everyone, Jew, Gentile. It, it's the wrong kind of savior for people who are trying to make it in this world, who are trying to get ahead. But as you keep reading chapter 1, you realize that God chooses, verse 26, 31, the wrong kind of people to get ahead. He doesn't choose the wise or the strong, not the beautiful people, not the influential, those with something to offer. He chooses the weak and the foolish, <laughs> those without any real connections, the lowly, despised people from the wrong side of the tracks, people like you and me. Not only that, but chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, God chooses the wrong methodology. That instead of verse 1, lofty speech and wisdom, Paul already mentioned that in chapter 1, verse 17, talks about his eloquent wisdom. It, it was a way of speaking that emphasized the speaker over the content of what was spoken. Instead of lofty speech and wisdom, Paul says, verse 3, that he came with much weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power and to the eyes of the Corinthians that just looks bad to their eyes their ears his presentation is so lacking <laughs> he comes in weakness trembling does doesn't say anything compelling doesn't leave them spellbound in awe, doesn't crank them up using the power of a crowd to manipulate them emotionally, doesn't try to get them all riled up and then give them some kind of cathartic release. He doesn't move them like they're used to being moved, like they want to be moved. So when he's done, people walk away going, oh man, this guy? This is the messenger from God. Come on, I can't bring my neighbors or coworkers to hear that. They're not going to be impressed. I'm not impressed. His bodily presence is weak. His speech of no account. Isn't there someone who can speak better? Someone who's a little more presentable? 
someone in my society will take more seriously. They compare God's approach with what their society values, and it just comes up lacking, comes up short of what their society will applaud. And that's always the challenge for God's people. We love that God has come to us. We celebrate that. We celebrate that we now have a home with him, that we belong with him, and at the same time, we also long just to feel a little bit like we have a home here on earth, that we belong here with the people around us. And so throughout Scripture, there's always this background temptation. It happens every age. It happens in every place. And the temptation is to take just a little bit, or, or sometimes a lot of bit, of what the world around you loves and trusts in, and then mix that into your faith. Joshua speaks to this. Way back in the promised land, he's urging the people to serve the Lord. And he says there are two alternatives to serving the Lord. Joshua chapter 24, 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. But if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Hear the paradigm that he offers there? You have two basic alternatives. You can read through these, the rest of Scripture. You have two basic alternatives when it comes to serving the Lord, both of which fit into the nations of the world. But they do so from different directions depending on what you're most comfortable with. And so you can either serve the gods of your ancestors beyond the river or the gods of the modern people in whose land you're living. So if you're a traditionalist, there are options for you, the old gods of your ancestors. And if you're more contemporary, there are options for you, the new gods of the people in whose land you dwell. You can either look back to what used to make society work earlier, or you can look forward to new ways of making society work now. You can cling to the old ways. You can embrace the new thoughts and energy. You can hold to the past. You can be more progressive. You can embrace legalism, the old code of moralism. Or you can embrace licentiousness, the new code of freedom. <laughs> Whichever works for you whichever will give you the life that you're most happy with. But notice this. None of those options have anything to do with Christ. They don't see the world how he does. They don't rely on him to live in this world. None of those have anything to do with Christ because they're not supposed to. They are the means by which this world urges you to carve out a good life for yourself. They are ways of relying on your, your own human strength and abilities to make your world in this work, way, make your way in this world. And that's what makes them so appealing. They elevate human abilities and human power over what the cross says is true about the best that we have to offer. See, you look at the cross, and it clearly tells us we can't save ourselves. We can't save our world on our own. You hear that, and you think, man, what this world says about us as human beings, that just sounds so much more appealing, <laughs> even to our ears in the church. 
And so, yes, we do follow this Messiah, but we're also drawn to things that pander to our vanity, that say we are strong enough to save ourselves in some way, and then we are tempted to quietly bring those things into the church. We add these things to Christ rather than going all in to embrace the foolishness that God offers of being single-mindedly set on Christ. And so for many of us, Jesus becomes the way to start a relationship with God. But we rely on something else to make our lives work. And so things like moralism are appealing. I can base my self-worth off of the good things that I did today. That is now the way that I will construct my identity, the way that I will think well of myself. Or if you don't like moralism, yes, I, I trust Jesus to start a relationship with God, but I don't trust him to deal with life when it's hard, with the suffering that comes from living in a cursed and broken world. For that, I turn to therapeutic interventions that tell me my worst problems come from outside of myself, not from in. Or I believe that social action and political activism are sufficient in and of themselves to fully bring justice into this world. Or I believe that education really does have the power to transform individuals. That entertainment is the way to deal with a stressful life. That amassing wealth will give me security. It's so easy to decide not to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's so easy to trust and rely on something else instead. <laughs> something that the world around me values and respects. Something that I look for and insist on when I come into the church. And all that, Paul said, no. Unashamedly, I decided to know nothing. Not even all the things from my past that were so tempting. I decided to know nothing except Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. Because this is the power and the wisdom of God. Which brings us to point three very quickly. Why? Why is this essential? Why can't we simply grab some elements from our surrounding culture? Something that makes us a little more palatable to our friends and family. What's the big deal? It's because verse five, Paul does this, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, there are two things that you can rely on to communicate the life of faith. You can rely on God's wisdom or human wisdom, but those two approaches result in two very different outcomes. Either you rely on human wisdom, human tactics, human appeals, human persuasion, what Paul talks about as lofty speech, eloquent wisdom, or you can simply connect all of life to Christ and leave the results in God's hands, humbly relying on his power to transform people's lives. And the longer that you think about it, the more you realize actually that is what you want to do. Because if you rely on human strategies, different human methods, stylistic devices, if you're relying on those to persuade someone to follow Christ, isn't it possible that somebody else could unpersuade them so that they're no longer following Christ? Those human techniques, they look powerful and impressive. They end up very unstable, very weak. But if you rely on the power of God, you can't predict what he'll do. But when he moves in power by his spirit, there is nothing that can undo that in a person's life. 
And again, you realize here that I'm not just talking to one or two of us, not just talking to ministry prof professionals. Paul is writing this for all of us who ever have to think about life, who ever have to talk to another human being. This is for you and me when we're hanging out with our friends, watching a game, eating dinner with our families, talking to people at work, in our neighborhood, sharing our lives and our thoughts on life. In each of those settings, when you open your mouth to say something, depending on what you've decided to know nothing except, you will either point these people to have greater confidence in their own abilities to transform their lives, or you'll direct them to the power of God to do that. Rely on human wisdom and human strategies to transform people, and you can be popular. You can be attractive to others, well-liked by the people around you. But you will not see the power of God at work in this world. I'll close with one last thing, because there's a real danger to this message. And that is that you might try to live it out by relying on something other than Christ and Him crucified. See, it'd be really easy right now to say to yourself, right, it, it, it's all about Jesus, I, and I keep forgetting that, and, and I'm convicted that I haven't been that focused. What do I need to do now? I need to put more effort into this. I need to work harder. I need to get more educated. I need to study more, learn more. Then I'll be more Christ-centered, more gospel-centered. You may need to study more. A lot of us do. But do you hear the temptation on how you study more? The temptation to rely on human effort one more time. I need to work harder. I need to discipline myself. I need to make myself do something that I really don't have a lot of interest in doing. That's not going to get you very far for very long. So let me propose a different approach. Why, why do these things out in the larger world, why do they hook us so easily, these not relying on Christ things? It's because we like them. We're enamored of them with what they do for us, with what they promise us. In a very real sense, it's because they're beautiful to us. What's the solution then? The solution is to see the beauty of Christ. To see and value how completely different he is from this world and how much better he is from anything in this world. Who are the people that the Corinthians were looking up to, the heroes of the ancient Greco-Roman world? The ones that they told stories about in their mythologies. The real heroes were deified mortals. Long list of them if you look them up. Human beings who went from mortal to immortal, from less powerful to more powerful, from being weak and vulnerable to strong and secure, who often went from tragedy to bliss. These were the people who made it. These are the ones that you hold up as examples to follow, people who now have a life worth living. Here's the beauty of Christ. His life moves in the complete opposite direction when it didn't have to. The weakness and fear and trembling that Paul came to the Corinthians with, that, that, that's nothing compared with what Jesus had coming to this earth. Jesus went from immortal to mortal. He took on a body. He went from holding the world in his hands 
to being born into this world so that he had to be held by someone else's. He went from infinitely strong to impossibly, helplessly weak. Weakness and trembling. Trembled in the Garden of Gethsemane as the cross came nearer. Sweat profusely. Asked his father to, for permission not to have to go through this. He needed to be strengthened by an angel just to continue. Trembling because he knew what was coming as he stared into the future. Future when he would cry out from the cross, My God, my God! When he would scream, scream because he would die alone. Not just abandoned by his followers, but forsaken by his father. Father who had never turned his back on his son, but who did so now, as Jesus died a state criminal. His speech silenced. Spotless reputation ruined. For, for what? No one in antiquity would choose this path for themselves. No one would honor or value or want to emulate someone who did. It was as countercultural as you can get. So why did he do it? Think, okay, well, yes, he, he, he was vindicated when he rose three days later. But vindication wasn't anything he needed before the cross. He had lived a perfectly sinless life. Yes, he was restored to power and glory to the right hand of God, but he had power and glory fellowship with God before he came to earth. Yes, he now rules this world by the power of his word, but it was his world to rule before. Why go through everything that he did? It's because there was one thing that he didn't have in heaven. One thing that he wanted more than he wanted a pain-free, powerful, impressive life. One thing that he wanted more than to guard and insulate himself from the sorrow of entering into this broken, sin-cursed world. One thing that was missing, and that was you. That doesn't make any sense. You and I chose human company. We've chosen the glory of human society over his friendship. We doomed ourselves to an eternity of misery. And he was not okay with that. And so he gave up everything he had so that you could have what you threw away. So that you could have him. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. So that, by, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What God has ever considered doing that? Just this one. And that's what makes him beyond beautiful. If your heart is not moved toward him, gaze on him, consider him. Let the heat of his passion for you start to warm your own heart for him, start to melt you until you're passionate for him. That's when you'll want to know and rely on nothing other than Christ and him crucified. Lord Jesus, I am enamored of so many things in this world because I do not consider you near enough. I'm not aware of how hot your passion runs for me. My friends are not aware of how hot your passion runs for all of us. Lord, let us see you. And as we see you, Lord, let us love and desire nothing 
as much as we love and desire to see you, to be in you, to be empowered by you. In Jesus' name, amen.